Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, you'll find on page 844 in a blue pew Bible in front of you. We'll be starting in verses 14 right at the bottom of the page of there of 844. But let me start this morning with a question. I, I wonder at what point do you come to the realization that you need to ask for help with something? How stubborn are you when it comes to asking for help? What's your break point? And it's probably depending on what we're trying to do, but how much does it take to, to acknowledge simply, I can't do this, I need help. What's interesting is that we're in a day now, we've been here for a couple decades now, that we have this thing called Google, all right, where you can act like you know what you're doing to other people, but you realize you're just asking Google for help and then doing it yourself. And, and I also wonder if uh, I were to tell you that, hey, this morning, every time you searched how to do something on Google in the past 12 months, it's going to be up on the screen and we're all going to look at it. How many of you would be comfortable with just sitting in the room while we all watched your Google search engine just come up on the screen? I mean, I probably multiple times a week without even thinking now, right? Just go into how do I do this? How do I do that? And, and it's probably a sad reality that our Google search engines know us better than most people in our lives, right? That they have more intimate insight into the things that we want and care about and love most and want to do most um, than, uh, than even some of our closest family and friends. And so uh, I was thinking about this, and you know Google has all their analytics, and uh, they did a uh, really a deep dive into the question, how to, that gets typed into their search engine. So in September of last year, they gave out the top 10 how-to questions typed into Google in the last 12 months. And, and the results are, are pretty funny. Number one, the number one how-to question typed into Google how to tie a tie. <laughs> Number two, how to kiss. Interesting. All right, I won't list them all, but some, uh, the most surprising one. Number five, how to draw. I mean, I, I, I know Google ain't helping me on how to draw, all right? I'm like too far gone, but some people, enough people to rank number five on the list. How do I draw? You have how to make money, um, how to make pancakes, all right, understand that. And, and number 10, how to lose belly fat, all right, no other fat matters, right? <laughs> Don't care about everything else. I want to know, how do I lose, how do I lose belly fat? <laughs> Didn't think that's where the first amen would come in the, in the sermon this morning. But in recent weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we, we, we've seen this real shift in its primary focus from revealing who Jesus is to halfway through of what does it mean to follow him? The question, how do you follow Jesus? If you typed that into Google, you'd probably get millions of hits. But what should pop up first, what would be most helpful, is Mark 9 and 10. It's a section of the gospel known as the discipleship discourse where Jesus describes what does it mean to follow him, what it means to have a faith that follows. All right, so I've been saying for multiple weeks now, um, real faith is not just knowing the right answers. That's part of it. You do need to know some things. You need to know what's right, truth revealed in the scripture, but it's not just knowing the right answers. Saying you believe includes knowing how those answers ought to shape the way you live. 
And I think this needs to be repeated to us just as much as we can because we're in a world where, where we think knowing the right answers is just all you need to know. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I could, I could pass whatever test you're going to give me. I, I know what I need to know. I, I know what I need to say. Even I've mastered the language. I know the church culture. But Jesus is telling us that it's irrelevant if you know the right answers if it doesn't shape the way you live. The Bible tells us clearly you cannot separate faith from following. It's just not possible that real faith, we all want real faith, right? Real faith is a faith that follows. And so we're going to pick up on Jesus' model of discipleship. We're actually going to be in chapters 9 through and 10 through the rest of the summer before we take a break in Mark in the fall. So we're going to be really just doing a deep dive week after week. What does it mean to follow him? And he's going to come at it from all different ways. And he's going to show us what's it mean to disciple somebody. We're going to watch it on display. Or something's going to happen in everyday life and the everyday travels, and then he's going to take that event and then use it to teach his disciples, right? Events that lead to teaching moments. How should faith and the what you say you believe impact the way you see the world around you, right? Isn't that what discipleship is? What it means to be discipled by someone, what it means to disciple someone else is to be around them in all different situations and see the way they live, how they react, how they're, what they say they believe impacts the way they see the world, right? So discipleship includes a lot of things. It includes formal study. It includes preaching and church um, attendance, but it's more than that. It's walking the path of life with someone, and as you go, them showing you what it means to connect belief to behavior. So parents discipling children. Mature believers discipling immature new believers. This is what discipleship is. Older members discipling younger members. A need for all of us to see this truth in here connected to my Monday through Saturday. You know what I'm saying? It's so easy to keep this on Sunday. And then walk through Monday through Saturday with a completely different world view. But making disciples is what it's all about. It's what the Bible's all about. It's what we're all about here at Grace Church. And we get to watch it happen in chapters 9 and 10. Jesus showing what it is to follow him. So three aspects of real faith that follows we're going to see this morning. One, it gets tested. Second, it acknowledges our weakness. And third, it requires Christ's strength. So let's get going. Mark chapter 9. We're going to start with just verses 14 and 15. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. All right, so we need to kind of get our bearings here. Where are we in the gospel, right? First, real faith gets tested. Jesus is together with Peter, James, and John, and they're, they're coming off their mountaintop experience from last week when, when they saw Jesus in all of his glory, the, the transfiguration. And, and so these three men and his disciples are coming down the mountain. They're still processing what's happening, and they get to the base, and all chaos is breaking loose. Last week, I spoke about how the transfiguration was a mirror to Exodus 24, when, when God had Moses come to the top of Mount Sinai with his three closest leaders to hear his voice, to receive the law. And now the parallel continues, because do you remember what happened when Moses came down from that mountain in Exodus? 
He had this amazing mountaintop experience, hearing from the Lord, getting tablets of stone with the law and how to teach Israel how to live. And he's probably excited coming down the mountain, and he comes to find Israel has gone off the rails. They got restless. They got impatient. And they convinced Moses' brother Aaron to build for them a golden calf. And they began to worship it. And they began to offer sacrifices to it because they were tired of waiting. So they took things into their own hands and they formed a God in their own image that they could control. Brian Loritz, he's a pastor out in California, talking about how hard it is to wait on God. He says this, the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing you had. They were tired of waiting, and they acted out, and it was just a complete mess. And if it weren't for Moses interceding for Israel, God would have just wiped them out altogether due to their blatant rebellion. And now in Mark 9, we see a parallel again, right? These men are coming off the mountain, a mountaintop experience. They heard the voice of the Lord, and now the rest of the disciples are off the rails, They are blatantly just arguing with the scribes. The scribes were the Jewish teachers of the law, the ones that were very opposed to Jesus by this time. And a whole crowd had gathered. They they were yelling at each other so blatantly, so violently, that everybody just came around to see what was happening. It was a horrible witness to the Lord. But before we even talk about why this was happening, isn't that just a little snapshot of the Christian life? Where there are times when you have this so-called mountaintop experience where you powerfully encounter God in a meaningful way, the love of Jesus Christ, you're filled with the Spirit, and you're just on fire for Jesus. Have you had those moments? Right? It might have been a missions trip that you're coming back from. It could have just been a retreat. It could be smaller than that. You just had a great meeting with your grace group. You had an awesome Sunday at worship. You, you had a time of family worship in your home throughout the week, and you're just, you're just on fire for the Lord. Doesn't it always seem to happen? That right away, something happens that make you realize, bam, now I'm right back in the middle of a fallen world. Where you quickly, quickly realize that other people in your life, you know what, they don't really care about your mountaintop experience. They didn't experience it, and they don't really care much about yours. Or maybe it's not external chaos you're coming across. Maybe all of a sudden you're experiencing this surge of temptation internally that seems to have come out of nowhere. Seems to, right? And there can be a longing to go return to the mountain, right? Like, God, why can't we just stay there? Why can't I just stay at the mountaintop? And that mindset and that season of life where I'm just experiencing you in powerful ways, why do I have to spend so much time down in the mess down here? Bring me back to the mountain. Maybe you're in a season of life where you, if you were honest, would say, Man, I used to be so close to God. I used to pray more. I used to love worship on Sunday morning more than I do right now. I used to read my Bible more. I I cared for the least of these more. And now I'm just in this grind. And and I've strayed. And I'm less passionate. And I, I rarely even think about him throughout the week. I'm blowing up on those closest to me. And I don't know why. No patience. I want us to think about this. 
These mountaintop experiences and these seasons of life, they are gifts, right? We ought to enjoy them. We ought to pursue them. But what if we saw them as the very means through which God equips us to handle life at the base of the mountain? His purpose in filling us in special ways is so that he can deploy us to be his salt and light in a fallen world, that we can persevere in the valley because Jesus told his disciples right before he died, he said, guys, in this world, you will have trouble. And so the time on top of the mountain was never meant to be permanent, at least not yet. The day is coming when we will be at the mountaintop and there will be no coming down, but until then we are equipped to be filled up and sent out. This is what life is. It's a struggle. It's full of tests. It's peaks and it's valleys. And rather than kind of bemoan it, we, we, we can embrace it. Not be surprised by it. Real faith puts us in the mess. And we can handle it because we've been equipped by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Real faith gets tested. And the reason why it gets tested is because we have a very real enemy. And you know what? He hates your faith. And he hates your Savior. And he's actively deciding that he wants to destroy you. And let's read Mark 9, 16 through 18. Jesus is speaking here. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The argument they were having, it wasn't just this philosophical power struggle. It wasn't just this high-level debate. It was over a situation where there was a little possessed boy who was seizing, who gets thrown to the ground and tortured, and this father of the boy tells Jesus, I came looking for you, but you weren't here. And so I saw your disciples and thought maybe they can do it, but even they were unable to cast it out. And, And then the scribes come like vultures, right? They see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to take a shot at Jesus, to undermine his authority. They, they point out to the crowd, see, told you that guy was a fraud. Look, his own closest disciples are even powerless to do anything. And it just shows, again, just such a lack of compassion amongst the scribes, right? No care for the boy himself. No care for the father. Just using it to ridicule, right? Using someone else's failure, to promote themselves. That might be the worst attribute to have in our own selves and in somebody else who sees somebody else's failure and jumps on it, loves it because they can promote themselves in the process. Maybe no worse attribute you can have. And that's what the scribes are doing. But the disciples were failing. They couldn't do it. They tried. And they tried to do it in their own power, completely self-reliant. And in the process, they underestimated the power of evil while overestimating their own power. And it just led to frustration and failure. And so we've talked at length earlier in the series about demon possession. It's happened, right, a few times in Mark. And so I won't kind of rehash it all right now. But I'll simply say is that what we have found 
is that not everyone is possessed by a demon, right? I think we can safely say that, but listen, everyone is fighting a spiritual enemy, whether or not you realize it. It's what Paul means in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual enemies in this world, and they are real, and they are powerful, and they cannot be defeated without help. Real faith that follows doesn't keep you from getting tested. It doesn't put you in a bubble where you can't be touched. It's actually, in some ways, the opposite. Real faith will increase testing in your life because you are hated more by the enemy if you're a confessing follower of Jesus Christ. Spiritual warfare is real. All right, so Rachel talked about that women's conference in October. You, you know what the theme is? The, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six, and I'm just like telling you women, like this is real life. This applies to you. This is not philosophical. Let's get together and just learn some things. This is applicable. You need to be there. That's why we're announcing this so far in advance. October 13th, you need to know the tools to defend, defend against it or else you're sunk. So real faith gets tested. Let's keep going. Mark 9, 19 to 24. Let's see what happens. Again, Jesus talking. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Second, real faith that follows acknowledges our weaknesses. It acknowledges our weaknesses. So Mark, he, he, this, he loves doing this. It's, it's in line with one of his dominant themes. He, spotlight, he spotlights genuine faith of somebody that you would not expect in a story. It wasn't the scribes, right, who know the scriptures back and front. It wasn't even Jesus' own disciples, the ones who uh, have been traveling with him all of this time. It's the Father who displays the greatest faith, a no-name, desperate Father. So don't gloss over this. It's never the smartest It's never the most experienced. It's the one who is desperate and weak who connects to the divine power of Jesus Christ. We need to see this. Like we need to like feel it in our bones because this can really be life-changing and I'm not just being dramatic about that. If we press the pause button here and just look closely what just happened. The boy is brought to Jesus and the spirit sees him and he convulses violently because he knows, again, this is no match for him. He doesn't stand a chance. And Jesus takes it and with compassion asks his father, how long? How long have you guys been dealing with this? And the father says, it's ever since he was a child, when he was very young. And, and I'm not sure why, but all I know is that 
It continually happens, and every time it's a reminder in my face that I can't fix it. A father who has no power to fix his own son, who's weak, and he needs help. And he says, Father, if you can do anything, like if you can just do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And, and Jesus hears this and says, right, one of the most in some ways, famous lines that he has echoed, all things are possible for one who believes. There's no qualifiers in there. It wasn't some things. It wasn't saying there's a few things that are possible if you believe. He says all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father's response, that's probably even more famous, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe Help my unbelief. Real faith acknowledges our weakness. It's a remarkable response. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. If Jesus just said to you, all things are possible, include healing your boy if you believe, what are you going to say as the father? Yeah, yeah, I believe. I believe Jesus 100%, all in, no doubts whatsoever. Could, could Could we heal him? But instead, he shares his heart as it really is. Totally transparent, real faith. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm trying to, Jesus, but I have my doubts. And I'm struggling. And his, his faith is small. But what the Bible shows again and again is all it takes is a little faith in a big God to see divine power put on display. Faith is the bridge between our inadequacy and God's provision. And there is no faith where there is not first an acknowledgement of weakness. That we can't do it on our own. That we're not good enough and we're not smart enough. You can't have faith unless you start there. Real Christians are not the ones who have it all together and are better than everyone else. Somehow that's the theme that's just out there, that, that when people say they're a Christian, that they think, I'm just, I'm just kind of over everybody, and I'm, I, I'm looking down on you because I have it all together. I'm a Christian. In the Bible, the true Christians are the ones who are so broken and weak that they need help. And so if you say, man, I, I feel inadequate, my, my response would be, yes, amen, you are, and so am I, which is why we need to believe in someone else. And so I don't know where you stand on the importance of memorizing Scripture. I don't know how important of a discipline that is in your life. But let me just say this right here. I can say with full confidence, you need to memorize this line. It's a pretty easy one, too. I believe. Help my unbelief. It might be just the most relatable verse in the Bible. If you were reading this like a newspaper, reading the Bible, just kind of scanning through it, you might see that and go, whoa, that's kind of weird. What is it? You believe or you not believe. But if you're following Christ and you're living a life that is seeking to be faithful and trust him in every area, you come across this verse and it's like an oasis in the desert. Yes, that is my life constantly. I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Where you can really say, Jesus, I believe in your power. I believe in your promises to save. I believe you died on the cross to forgive sin. I believe you rose again to declare victory over death. That is real. But in this situation, I'm struggling to believe. I'm struggling you can believe that, you, that you're going to help me with this. Whatever this is in your life right now. 
Like, what's the situation you're struggling to trust him in right now? When you're anxious, when you're lying in bed at night staring at the ceiling, what are you thinking about? Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, doubt, doubt is never glorified in the Bible. I would say it's never encouraged, but it's always understood. It is always understood. All throughout Scripture, God has mercy on those who doubt, those who are honest and acknowledging weakness. And I'm thinking about this. You know why we're safe to acknowledge it? Because real faith is not reliant upon its strength. It's reliant upon its source. Think hard with, this, with me on this. It's not reliant upon its strength. It's reliant on its source. All right, so let me explain it with an illustration that I heard a pastor give once that stuck with me. Um, this is going to sound a little weird for the middle of July. But you're gonna, let's say you have two people, and they decide they want to go ice skating on a pond in town that's frozen. And so they get ready, they get all their gear, and they get to the edge of the water. Pond is frozen over, but neither of them really know how deep it is. They're not totally sure how deep that ice is, if it can hold them. But one person has strong faith, and so they just race out onto the pond, start doing double axles and triple axles, and I don't know, whatever you do, that's cool on the ice. I've never gone. I'm terrified, all right? But that person just going, no thought. Like, I have strong faith this ice is going to hold. Let's say the weak person comes to the edge, and like they're just barely, like they're just, they're, they're like tapping it. They're doing one of these for a while, right? And then they get one foot, and, and then they get the next foot, and they just kind of like slowly terrified get to the middle of the lake, have no faith that this is really going to hold, or at least just a weak faith, because here's what's true about this situation. Regardless of whether you are strong or weak, they're both on the ice. And what's keeping them from crashing through is not whether or not they believe the ice is deep enough. What's keeping them from crashing through is the source of their faith, the ice itself. In the same way, the source of faith in the Christian life is what keeps us from crashing through, not whether our faith is strong or weak. Because it's not about us, it's about Him. So we take our eyes off ourselves and we're on to Christ because just a little faith, even just a little faith, the Bible tells us the faith of a mustard seed is able to move mountains. Because it's not the strength of a faith that matters, it's the source. So we are free to acknowledge weakness where it exists. We're free to say, this is where I'm struggling, and this is where I'm doubting, and we can put all of our weight upon him and know that he's faithful to hold us up. Real faith acknowledges weakness. Let's read the last few verses of this passage. Mark 9, 25 to 29. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, 
why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Third, real faith requires Christ's strength. So, so the story moves on. Jesus heals the man's son, drives this demon out like we've seen him done several times in Mark before. But do you notice this time, it actually got worse before it got better. A little kind of, uh, the, the, after the spirit drives the spirit out, the, the, it convulsed him terribly, we're told. Mark adds that word. It didn't just convulse him, it convulsed him terribly, so bad that this boy was just strung out on the ground and people were like, oh man, he's dead. We haven't seen that one before. Jesus just lost, I think. But then Jesus bends down, physically takes him by the hand, and raises him up. Just a little gift for us to read, right? A little foreshadowing to what the power of Jesus can do. It could raise the dead to life. He replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. He breathes life into your soul. And Jesus, now with a shifted focus on discipling those who are following him, now uses this as a teaching moment. So if this happened in the first half of Mark, which we saw a lot of times, you know how it would have ended? You know how all the stories in Mark ended? And everyone was amazed, and Jesus went on from there. But it doesn't end that way this time. Because now we're in kind of a different shift, a different focus. Jesus now takes this thing that happened and uses it to teach his disciples, connecting everyday life to eternal truth. Because the disciples want to know, hey man, why, why couldn't we do that? And absolutely, there's some pride and ego and immaturity on their end there, right? Like, like, Jesus, that was cool and all, the boy's okay, but we wanted to do that. Why couldn't we do that? But their question is not as crazy as you might think. Do you remember back in Mark 6, Jesus deployed the 12 disciples two by two on a mission? Remember we read, uh, this is Mark 6, verse 7, quote, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And not only that, but if you go down to verse 13 of chapter 6, we read, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They've done this before successfully, powerfully. Like, I can't even imagine that in the name of Jesus just driving out demons wherever you walk because Jesus gave them that authority. And so now they're asking, why couldn't we do it this time? We were saying the same things. We were doing the same actions, verbatim, and nothing. Why not? And Jesus simply says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See what he does there? The disciples forgot where their source of power came from. Their experience with Jesus and driving out demons actually worked against them because they became self-reliant, right? They, they thought they could do it on their own, that they, they had enough experience, they had enough time with Jesus. Yeah, I know the drill here. I know what I need to do. I know what I need to say. I know how I need to act. I know how I can make it look like, yeah, we're all good. We have the power of Jesus. And they just strayed away from him. But real faith always requires Christ's power. Hear me. No one, no one will ever outgrow their need for Jesus. And the temptation amongst those of us who have been saved for a long time, maybe you've grown up in church, man, you aced that quiz in like second grade. Now you're, now you're way older and you still know all the answers. The temptation for us is that we get to a point where we just think, yeah, I know how this works. 
and then we stray from the very power that we need most. Never forget where the source of power comes from. We require the power of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, prayer is an indicator here. Prayer is the action that's going to tie this all together. When it comes to following Jesus, there's nothing more dangerous than the mirage of self-reliance. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need him at every moment. This is what this story is about, to warn them of the danger of self-reliance. And it's prayer, the act of prayer. What is prayer? At its very core, in line with this passage, I think you could say prayer is an acknowledgement of weakness. I can't do it on my own. I need you at every moment. This is why Paul would tell the church, a church later in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. You need him at every moment. And listen, we could do a whole 10-week series about prayer from, from the Bible easily, but just boil down to this context. What we see is that prayer strengthens faith because it acknowledges weakness. It gets our eyes off ourselves and it lifts them up to the true source of power in our faith. And there is no greater threat and no greater danger we face in the American church than a lack of prayer. It's hard, man. It's tough to focus. It's tough to find the time. But, but if we were totally honest, you, this is why I think prayer is hard for us. Because we hate acknowledging weakness. We hate it. We are immersed in a culture whose whole ethic is you can do it on your own. You have what it takes. You just got to try a little harder or you need a new method to get things under control. So what you don't, you don't need Christ. You need a new job. You need a new spouse. The one you have now is not working. You need a new vacation. You need a new car, a new toy. You need to binge watch a new Netflix show. That's what you need to get things back under control. You have what it takes. But prayer is a recognition that what you need is Christ over and over and over again. Because it's only Christ that awakens faith. It's only Christ who paid the ultimate price by going to the cross to die for sin. It's only through Christ that we are forgiven upon repenting of our sin and putting our trust in him. And it's only in Christ that we can approach the God of the universe freely in confidence, which is why we pray in Jesus' name and no other name. If we want to talk to the God of the universe, what a gift that is. And you know why we can? Jesus and what he's done. He's the only source of power that we need. And so Jesus says, this kind, I love that phrase, this kind cannot be handled in any other way than through prayer, through his strength. And I wonder, if your current worry right now, what is keeping you up at night, your current source of anxiety, I wonder if it could be, quote, this kind. The kind that can only be handled through prayer. There is no greater pursuit in the world than a pursuit to pray. It's hard and it's worth it because it's in those moments when we hear God say, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? 
weakness. I want to close with a quote from a book that relates to this. It's a book called Gospel Wakefulness by Jared Wilson that God used to impact my life greatly. We have a copy of it right down the hall in the library. And Jared was speaking of a time in his life where he hit just rock bottom, was actually considering suicide, and he wrote this. And in those days, at the end of my rope and the end of myself, as I was out of options and out of help and tempted to abandon what scrap of faith I had left, I could hear the Lord asking, do you want to try anything else? And I was granted the grace to say to the God of my salvation, to whom shall I go? You might hear that and think that must have been the moment he put his faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And just based on that quote, yeah, that does describe something that that could have happened. But for Jared, at this point, he was a pastor. And he believed, but he wasn't following He had self-admittedly just become self-reliant because he understood what he needed to say and he understood what he needed to do and he had just the life down, but he strayed and it nearly crushed him until the grace of God took his eyes off himself and lifted them to see him high and lifted up. Real faith that follows gets tested and it's in the act of prayer where it simultaneously acknowledges weakness and requires Christ's strength at every stage of life, no matter how long you've been a believer. All it takes is a little, just a little faith to connect us to divine power. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your entire word. But right now, in the life of our church, we are grateful for Mark 9 and 10. We thank you what we're able to see week after week of just a a discourse on what it is to follow you, to have real faith that follows, Father, and allow us to acknowledge our weakness, to not act like we have it all together, Lord, to say, I believe, help my unbelief, knowing that that is what connects to divine power. Father, we are desperate for you. And we thank you for the grace that we have to repent and start anew and that your mercy is new every single morning. And we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.